Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Hello, Neil. Sun has arrived. <laughs> Hiya, Derek. Good to see you again, my friend. How's yeah. things? Yeah, good, good. Another episode of Historians, wow. And this week, we are delighted to introduce Sally Hayden, who mm-hmm. has wrote um, a brilliant book, My Fourth T- Time We Drowned, yeah. um, which is about migration. And migration is a huge part of, I suppose, the story of humankind. And, you know, if I want to bring it a little bit more recent, we, we had the first large-scale one within Europe would have been the barbarian invasions, so the, the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And uh, subsequent to that, you're looking at the mid-1800s and the mass migration of Europeans o- over to the States. So mm-hmm. it's something that's ongoing. We're always having to deal with it, but I suppose what Sally's trying to, to do with her book is bring everyone's attention to how badly we're dealing with it today. Sally is very well qualified um, to talk about all this. Her book did uh, win the Orwell Prize for Political Writing in 2022. Um, So that's uh, no small feat in and of itself. And Sally is an Africa reporter and has reported for uh, BBC, Guardian, Time, Washington Post, Al Jazeera. With that, let's uh, say hello, um, Sally Hayden. Welcome to the Historians. Hi, Sally. Hey, thank you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. And, and just on a note as well, it's a bit un- unusual for, for us, Derek, in that we actually have a, an Irish person, yeah. much like ourselves, um, because most of our guests have been recently have been further afield. And so it's uh, nice to welcome a fellow Irish person on board to the podcast for a slight little change. But yeah, you've just told us just before we came on, you were just back from the Lebanon. Was that, was that work, presumably? or or? Yeah, that was for work. I just flew in, like, yeah, today. Well, that, that just adds to the, I suppose, the adventure then as well, that you're just fresh, fresh back from there. What's it like? I've never been. I've been there a few times, but I hadn't been there since the latest, you know, there, there's been a financial crisis. Mm. Um since 2019 and so like yeah it's a beautiful city like I love Lebanese people uh generally you know it's wonderful but Mm. then also very kind of sad uh the situation compared to what it what it was like before well I think I think inflation is running them up there isn't it it's a bit like Weimar Republic Germany uh it's got completely out of hand right yeah exactly like last time i was there i looked up the like the place close to me was selling salads and i think it cost like twelve thousand five hundred for a salad last time and this time it was like nine hundred thousand or jesus um yeah so i actually like tried to pay for food on the first day with like a note that would have been like way way too much before and now suddenly like was absolutely nothing and right. that That's was frightening. Wow. Yeah, That's... really, 
really shocking for people. You're going around with like bundles and bundles of notes that don't really add up to that much in, in euros, say. So like Yeah, not- basically, basically like the biggest note now is worth about one dollar and it would have been worth about sixty-five dollars and now it's well. worth one dollar, something like that. It's like still kind of okay for people who are earning dollars like they're, mm. they're earning kind of money from abroad but people who are earning liras the salaries haven't gone up they've stayed the same so suddenly everything has become completely unaffordable and, and, and tell so what, what what motivated you to um pick up this story and run with it um, in 2018 wasn't it i mean i had been reporting on migration kind of related issues since around 2014 2015 because i had been working initially for vice news um based out of london kind of as the staff writer like the main staff writer not in america and obviously there was like a lot of kind of migration related stuff happening and I'd be covering whatever the biggest news stories of the day were. So I ended up covering like some of the shipwrecks in the Mediterranean and also um, people coming across from Calais, from Calais to to the UK. Um, and yeah, so I had kind of been covering it and then I ended up going freelance 2016 and I reported on Syria, like Syrian refugee uh, stories and did an investigation related to that. And then I had done one about the UN Refugee Agency in Sudan as well. But the actual genesis of the book um, is a Facebook message that I got out of nowhere and I basically because I had kind of become a bit known for doing this type of reporting I started getting contacted by lots of different people who would give me tips and stuff like that but this Facebook message was like nothing that I had received before it said hi sister Sally we need your help we're under bad condition in Libya prison if um, you have time I'll tell you all the story and it was from a man who said he was among like 500 men, women and children who had been locked up in what he called a prison. It turned out to be a migrant detention center and that they had been abandoned in the middle of a war zone, that there was like fighting happening around them. They had no food or no water and they basically desperately needed help. And what he told me was that they had all tried to reach Europe and they had been caught on the Mediterranean Sea forced back to Libya and that was when they were locked up and that was how they came to be in this position and so from that Facebook message basically that was the start of like years and years of reporting for me that was focused on initially just answering this question like what is European Union policy doing to people who try to reach Europe and what are the consequences of it and what became quite clear quite quickly is that since 2017 uh the eu basically you know there was kind of this backlash to um to refugees and migrants arriving in europe after 2015 and the so-called european migrant crisis and there were efforts made to try and stop people from actually reaching european territory and since 2017 the eu has been supporting the libyan coast guard so basically people who try and cross from libya in north africa um, are being intercepted by Libyan vessels and forced back to Libya. And basically, this is a circumnavigation of international law. So their boats of people are spotted by, you know, European, uh, you know, supported drones, helicopters, planes. So the surveillance is kind of 
European, but the actual interceptions are done by Libyan vessels, which means that um, they can be returned to Libya, whereas a European vessel could not return people to Libya. And basically, like, I wanted to answer the question, you know, so what is happening to these people? And it turned out, like, now we've topped, I think, 116 or 117,000 people that have been caught this way and forced back. The European Border Agency, like, they were actually, you know, I kept asking, like, what's happening to everybody who's monitoring the consequences? You know, for example, how many people are dying once they're forced back to Libya? And they told me that they're not actually monitoring that part of it. And so, like, the whole point of my reporting from that point was I want to, you know, I want to document this. Um, but, yeah, so the, that, the, sorry, that was a very long answer. But the book is basically the result of that. But it's also, like, only very, very much the tip of the iceberg, both in terms of what I uncovered but also then even what I uncovered is like only the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's actually happening so um it's only a very small you know effort to to make sure that there's kind of documentation of the consequences but at least you know it's something there's a, a few things there that certainly I'd love I'd love love to talk about um like the, okay so the Facebook message right you know the way it's right there it sounds like you know a thousand other scams <laughs> looking for, you know, uh, please deposit one million euros into our account. And the fact that you get so many messages, how do you discern what's what's the real deal? Um, and uh, of what use then is it to Libya to have all these refugees in detention centres uh, under prison conditions? Um, you know, is it is it money? There, there's a subsidy coming from from Europe. Is that right? Uh, yeah, do you want me I answer the second one yeah. first? Or? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so of what use is it to Libya? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there's like many different ways that people make money off kind of the detention of migrants, basically. And what analysts say is that they've gone because Libya used to be like a key smuggling hub, you know, human smuggling hub that a lot of the kind of people who were involved in smuggling are now involved in the detention of people instead and basically you're going for whichever way you're going to make the most money um and like if you're holding on to people if you're detaining people like there's there's many ways to make money you can like um make money off like aid when aid is delivered you're siphoning off different bits of aid you're also like extorting people who are in your detention system like getting them to get their family members to send money to send bribes things like that um and a lot of the detention centers like people are sent out to do forced labor as well there's a lot of like going out to work in homes you know working construction working farms that sort of thing um there's also like yeah like there's there's yeah different different means to do that and also different ways of utilizing those people under your control and um at the same stage then you have like the un backed triply based government you know gaining some sort of kudos i guess or some sort of um the, you know the chance to be working with the eu or working with the uh you know, to be recognised. Yeah. With the source, so how do you know? How do you, find, did you get a, like a gut feeling first and then go down and try and pursue it? Um, or how did you uh, how did you find out if this was the real the real deal? 
No, it would be wrong to say I got a good feeling. I think like it was a kind of a slightly lucky time that they got me at because you know I was working as a freelance journalist and sometimes I'll be really busy traveling around and sometimes I'll be at home and you know not necessarily have plans for like a few weeks or you know just be looking out for stories or just available basically and I think they got me at a time that I didn't have plans to travel at least for a week or two and I got this message and I was home and I was like oh I'll just message back you know sometimes I, I, I'll generally like message somebody back where I would at that time but um, not take it necessarily that seriously you just answer and say you know can you give me more information I normally say to people straight up like I'm a journalist I can't help you I can't help you directly anyway because I don't want them to think that you know they're speaking to somebody who might have the power of a some sort of aid organization or something behind them but um but yeah so I think I responded and just said like I can help you but if you want to tell me about it you're welcome to and so this person started talking to me and basically like the more and more that I spoke to them it became quite clear that what they were saying you know seemed legitimate but also like I had contacts, I hadn't reported in Libya, but I had reported in Sudan, which is neighboring to it. And I had heard like a bit about what happens in Libya. I didn't know a huge amount about it. And I managed to like contact a journalist that I knew, a Libyan journalist the same day and said, you know, because the, the first source was telling me a war had just broken out. So I said to that journalist, is this correct like has a word just broken out like obviously that sounds like a really stupid question but can you tell me and he was like yes and then I said like this specific neighborhood do you know why there would be like a lot of like migrants or refugees locked up there and he was like yes there's a detention center there so that was the point when I was like okay like this seems like it could be real and then you know, I started asking for everything I could think of, like selfies, GPS locations, family contacts, just more and more information, keep the chat going, phone calls. Um, but I also then started contacting aid agencies, like anyone that I could think of that seemed to work in Libya and just saying, you know, this sounds strange, but I'm being told by this group of people that they're in this neighborhood, that there's 500 of them, that they, you know, have been abandoned. And then at that point, the responses I was getting from the aid agencies were like, yes, that does seem like it's likely or possible, but we can't do anything about it. But they weren't saying, you know, that's, that could be wrong. So, um, so yeah, at that point, then I think it took me 24 hours to go public with it. I started posting the messages on Twitter. Um, and yeah, at that point, then everything really escalated. I must I must admit, I always admire the gutsiness of investigative reporters because like you, you go down these routes and it's like, it's like jumping off a cliff and hoping that there's a, a bouncy castle at the bottom, you know, because uh, you don't know if the story you get picked up, will you get the right information, you know, are you being led astray, all that kind of stuff. To be honest, it wasn't even that I was like excited about a story. Like I had people who were on the you know, they were saying that they were in a life or death situation, that they were absolutely terrified. You know, they were sending me audio of like bombs going off and of gunfire. And it wasn't actually, it wasn't even that I was thinking of a story at that time. It was that I was actually just like, oh my God, like this sounds really frightening. And 
yeah like that was why i put it on twitter because like you know if you're a freelancer you don't put stuff on twitter you hold back your scoop or whatever but at that point i was like i don't even you know i don't even know if someone is going to publish this so these people are saying they really want this to be public so that's what i'm gonna do maybe tell our listeners about the the numbers that we're talking about so in volume the numbers of people that are migrating and i know this has certainly changed uh, since the war in ukraine and it's grown exponentially uh, and also you know how many people have died over a certain period of time i mean you're, you're talking the guts of a football stadium uh, amount of people who have actually perished on the way over I actually wrote a story about this for the Irish Times recently on global migration figures, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. But the area that I particularly focus on is the central Mediterranean, which is called by the UN the deadliest migration route in the world. And that's what my book and my reporting has been based on. And that's generally the route between Libya or sometimes Tunisia to Malta or Italy so people like they'll get they'll tend to like have already done like very long journeys through desert um you know maybe spending a week driving through the desert being held by smugglers human smugglers traffickers and then eventually they get in boats and they try and cross over and it can be days in a boat to try and get to Italy or Malta and since 2014 more than 20,000 people have died on that route I think it's a it's I haven't got the latest figure, but it's it's risen a good bit above that now, I think. And the first three months this year have been, I think, the deadliest in several years anyway. So it's kind of maintaining its position as what's known as the deadliest migration route in the world. Um, so, yeah, like the numbers are pretty astounding. In the whole of the, the Mediterranean, I think it's above... I can actually get the latest for you because maybe um, I'm going to even be underplaying it. But I think it's about 26,000. Wow. Wow. Uh, since 2014. But I mean, 20,000, like I said, of those are the central Mediterranean. And typically from Libya, they're going across and trying to land on an Italian island called Lampedusa. Or, or, I mean, yeah, it could be Lampedusa, it could be Malta as well, sometimes okay. even Sicily, and sometimes, um, like, they might get rescued by, like, a rescue boat or something in the meantime. So I can just see here it's 26, the whole of Mediterranean, 26,362 since 2016, and... Yeah, the central Mediterranean, oh, 20,770. But those are, figures are thought to be an underestimate. Like, um, mm. you know, we don't have we don't have definite figures of how many people are dying and going Because, because quite simply, you don't know how many people are leaving, you know, the country mm. of origin, say, you know, be, being Libya. And, you know, at the start of all this crisis or whatever you decide to, to say when it, when it began, uh, typically it was on... Um, you know, the relative safety of a, a fishing vessel, but now we're talking people on dinghies. So unless you know how many people got in the dinghy um, on the, to, to go over to Italy or, or wherever, and then uh, if the dinghy, you know, deflates and everybody drowns again, that's it. They're the, they're the unknowns. They're the unknown names, figures. Yeah, and I mean, it's always like worth remembering you know someone described to me before migration like a balloon you know you squeeze one part and then another part kind of inflates and 
one route that I know that is becoming very popular the last few years is the uh, West Africa, like up to the Canaries, that route. And that's actually like incredibly dangerous. It's about nine, like nine days at sea, maybe if you don't get lost. And we really have no like idea how many people are drowning on that route. Um, I know that some figures have been released, but I don't know how accurate they are because um, there was an investigation actually out by AP, I think this week, which said that like some of the boats go missing at sea and end up in uh, in the Caribbean or in, um, yeah, like they, I don't know, there's just like all these kind of ghost ships that are being found like a very long time later. And so, yeah, there's like other migration routes as well that, you know, that people are so desperate because they're hearing that crossing the central Mediterranean has becoming has become so hard that they're turning to these like incredibly you know much much longer routes version of our of our coffee ships from from the famine days you know we you know we learned about this at school and the, the figures back then were you know difficult to comprehend you know a million people died here a million people you know um, fled and the coffee ships are, are kind of we 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 have them in our in our in our DNA in our national psyche, you know that you know as far removed as we are history wise from them, they're still jaw dropping figures. But we're looking at this unfolding right now. Like these are similar kind of rates of fatalities, aren't they? Like it's just it's it's really difficult to comprehend. And again, it's obviously obviously thing to say, but these these are people that are like the most desperate, aren't they? I mean, they're fleeing war-torn countries into migration camps and then out onto the open waters like knowing knowing the risks because you know they would have heard the stories about the people that went before them and you know they're not blithely blissfully unaware that they just have to get onto this vessel and then several hours later they'll be in the the promised land right so they know the risks that they're taking that's it Neil that's what I was going to say because like you know for, for you and me we were kind of maybe the last of that generation that you know took the first plane out of here once we left school or college. Um, I emigrated over to the States. Uh, you emigrated to uh, a variety of different places around the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, you know, I, I did it for money, you know, prospects. Um, you know, you did it for travel purposes and maybe to earn a few quid. I much. did the same. Sorry, same? I did the okay. same. I moved to London looking for work um, 20, mm. 2013, like the when Ireland was still kind of in the crash. But you, you wouldn't you wouldn't have done and this 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 is the point you wouldn't have done done Leary to Hollyhead in a dinghy to get there would you you know and, that, and that's the thing or I, I wouldn't have do you know what I mean so that like it you know puts perspective that a lot of people say oh a lot of these refugees you know they're not genuine you know they're just you know they're they're just looking for a better life you know want to make more money for their families and things like that you you don't risk the lives of your kids or your spouse or, or whatever, uh, unless you've got some serious heavy duty motivation to go and do that. Um, so these people, in my view, I mean, that they need, they need to be helped and, and Europe certainly needs to do an awful lot more than it's, uh, it's doing to facilitate it. Yeah. What, what can like, arguably, you know, bearing in mind that this is an awful, you know, human tragedy, what, what could, or what should Europe be doing? You know, like, what are they doing at the moment? Just turning them away, putting them in, you know, what do they do in Australia? They they round them all up and put them on some, you know, uninhabited island far off the coast, as far as I'm aware, like, and just make it a, you know, a place you don't want to try and go to. So what, what, 
like in, from humanitarian perspective, what what should Europe be doing? Do you think, Sally? Yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of wary about this question because I'm uh, working as a journalist, you know, and we're not really meant to be like advocates for specific policies and things like that. But I mean, my reporting, like I obviously like I ended up spending years of my life reporting this and I did that out of shock. And I think like a lot of the time what Europe is doing is just painted as inaction. So people just think, oh, it must just be that they're not actually sending out boats to rescue people in the sea. And that's not the case. Like actually the, the EU is taking deliberate actions to stop people from reaching its territory. And that includes, um, like I said, these, you know, supporting these interceptions. So we have like people being intercepted, forced back to Libya and locked up indefinitely in detention centers that have been compared to concentration camps by Pope Francis, among others. But it also involves like other like basically the eu is spending like kind of a multi-billion pot of money called the eu trust fund for africa which um is aimed effectively at stopping migration a lot of eu like external policy in africa anyway is now aimed at stopping migration in many different ways and with that money it was designated as crisis spending so there hasn't been proper oversight of what it is being spent on but from what i can tell from reporting in many different African countries like it is some of it anyway is being spent on systems that do prop up you know dictatorships militias they oppress people further and they make it actually more difficult for them to actually exist where they are and we have like a series of you know terrible crises that are going on across various different African countries even most recently you know Sudan has um has broken out in war you know Tigray Somalia has like terrible drought right now there's all these kind of different crises that are going on and at the same stage like the EU is just trying to stop people from from reaching its territory and and that's motivating a lot of the kind of the efforts that are being made and I just think that people need to be more aware of the actual consequences of those policies and there need to be more questions asked about how is money being spent and Mm -hmm. is it being spent in a way that is you know like like where uh, yeah more questions also about the human rights of that spending and also uh, like you guys said like the death toll is so huge and I mean the death toll in the sea is only one small portion of like the overall death toll which also involves people dying in detention centers people mm-hmm. dying in the desert people dying you know in, in the custody of human traffickers and smugglers mm-hmm. and I think that that's also important to you know to to see all that you know how that all is fitting together and to try and understand that and to not look away when people are dying because that's kind of real. And I know this because I, I did the same, like we're kind of almost at this point trained to go, Oh, another shipwreck in the Mediterranean. Like, like we don't treat it like we would if, if a boat of tourists drowned and there would be kind of an outpouring of sympathy and there would probably be profiles of who they all were. And, you know, we'd know their names, but if a boat of you know so-called migrants drowns we've it's like we're being trained to not pay attention anymore and Mm -hmm. why is that being allowed to happen why are those lives not being seen as as valuable as you know other people's lives yeah absolutely and it's it's you know it's times when that image of the the boy that was washed up you know that that 
you know, that's what focused people's attention all of a sudden. But this has been going on all the time. It's just one image that will center everybody's attention on it when it appears in a, in a you know, a newspaper and front page of a magazine. And even then there were, you know, kind of not complaints, but raised eyebrows about wh- whether that should have even been published, you know. So you, there's that whole debate. People like really, really, you know, have the, the heads in the sand approach until something like this actually happens but this is going on pretty much every day right like this is just yeah like oh, oh, something like that grabs the attention that it brings it back into the into the into the news cycle as it were but i mean i think even as journalists like we have to ask ourselves like have we been but that was partially why i wrote this book actually as well because i had to ask myself like have i been contributing to the dehumanization of people in the way that i'm writing about these tragedies you know when mm-hmm. i say like about where 200 migrants drowned or like sank, um, you know, nobody survived. Am I kind of in a way that even though in the terminology that I'm using, even by using the word migrants, am I like dehumanizing the people that were on board there? And should I be doing more to make sure that it's very clear that these are people, you know, with hopes and dreams and, you know, family members and there'll be people mourning them and, you know, what maybe say what they were fleeing from or or is us you know is anyone even paying attention to that anymore like I was questioning to myself like how much have I have I contributed to this like through my reporting in various ways and I just thought at least with the book you can kind of flesh out like personal stories and things like that it gives you more of a chance to actually make it clear like the human cost of this I mean, a very, I say that in like a very tiny chance because obviously the human cost is so much greater than I could ever portray. But, um, but yeah, you, you do get reminded. Like I have a, a friend of mine in Sierra Leone contacted me a few days ago and said that they're, they know somebody who's just sank on a boat or who's just drowned on a boat. You know, this is going on all the time. Mm-hmm. There's mourning happening all the time. But yeah, maybe we just can't. We're just kind yeah. of trying to look at you nailed it with the terminology, you know, migrant. You know, migrant sounds like holidaymaker. Doesn't sound like what you've just described. You know, it doesn't sound like that. that's what's happening. And, and maybe, and it, you know, that's the way we try to make it, you know, I suppose, te- te- not take responsibility for it. But there's a, yeah, there's also like an interesting debate happening among lawyers right now as to, um, because when you define, um, in terms of like international uh, law and crimes against humanity and groups that can be persecuted traditionally it has been like you know migrants as a as a group would not have been uh people that you could kind of lump together because obviously they have so many different backgrounds and different religions and you know different ethnicities and all of this but there's like a debate going on among lawyers now as to whether the way that the term migrants is being used is being used to demonize a group and basically allow that group to be persecuted and allow them to be treated in a way that we wouldn't treat other people and whether you know this is kind of almost a deliberate a deliberate effort to go after a particular group but yeah I think that that's a very interesting question because we do hear like so many political sound bites that kind of use the word migrants and it's like you know for me I, I I was a migrant like you were saying like I was an economic migrant to go to London and look for a job but I don't think if I drowned like I would be referred to as a migrants necessarily by my government or in news reports and and that's potentially very problematic 
it'd be called a tragedy. That's all it'd be called. <laughs> You know, if that, if that happened, yeah, and that, that's the difference. It, it's not really being said like that anymore in in, in the press. Um, God, it's, you know, it, it's frightening. And is there any human story that comes to mind that you could describe to uh, to our listeners and try and put a put a face on the people we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different stories that I followed in the book. Um, I'm just thinking one that was really terrible was um, a lady called Fatima. She's from Gambia. And she was with her husband. They were working, or he was working in Libya. I think he had a job, I forget exactly for how long, but anyway, for years. And he was sending back money to Gambia, just like, I guess, economic migrant, but to Libya. And um, then he got sick and basically needed medical care. He had a heart problem and they couldn't get the medical care in Libya. And so they, you know, and this is like, this is actually like quite common that people, they can't access medical care. You know, it's still a threat to life if you like, can't get the medical care you need. They basically decided to try and cross to Europe. And they had kids as well, four of them, or three of them initially, sorry, and she was pregnant. And they tried to cross to Europe and they got intercepted, caught, locked up in a detention center called Zintan. And they were separated. So like men and women are kept in separate areas. Um, and she, Fatima had three kids and she was pregnant. I forget exactly when she gave birth to the last one, but, um, anyway, it was either before or after her, one of her sons got appendicitis and over three days, basically like was suffering from appendicitis and she was kind of begging for help for him. She just really needed him to be taken to a hospital and he wasn't. And eventually he died. I think it was six or seven and her husband you know was kept in a separate hole they were like locked up they weren't being given enough food or anything like that um eventually the husband I think they were about taken to identify the body or maybe the husband just went to see the boy's body and the husband then I think four or six weeks later shortly after anyway then uh, also died and she thinks it was kind of from stress and heartbreak exacerbating the heart problem and so she then was left she also gave birth in detention so she was left with the three remaining kids um they got sent back to gambia through like this eu funded program that basically sends people back to the countries they've come from and it's called voluntary repatriation but you know if you're locked indefinitely in a detention center you're not being fed you've just seen your husband and your son die like it's arguable as to whether this is voluntary but anyway she went back to Gambia and I actually managed to visit her there and she's doing okay but she's obviously like incredibly traumatized and even her kids are like you know still very traumatized she said they still ask like when is their father coming back the older ones and um yeah, so that's one example, and that's one example of the deaths that, like, are, you know, one of the questions that I kept asking when I was doing reporting is, like, how many people are dying once they're returned to these detention centres? And that's something that, like, Frontex, the EU Border Agency, the EU Commission, like, nobody gave me an answer for. Nobody seemed to be collecting this. I mean, they weren't collecting this data, and like those deaths, from my perspective, are directly attributable to EU uh, migration policy, you know, because they were intercepted through EU migration policy and locked up as a result of that. And yeah, there's like never any reckoning for, you know, for those sorts of things. So whether, I mean, whatever your perspective on should 
her family have been trying to reach Europe this way or not, you know, I think that it's it's pretty clear that something has uh, there has been wrongdoing, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's a horrific story. I mean, it really is. And that, that's what you know, you're saying you're still recovering from the trauma. You don't get over that stuff. That, that, yeah. that, that whole family is, is, is destroyed. And then to and, and through that act of trying to do the best thing for your family to be returned home in total devastation and failure. I mean, you know, whoa, that's like it is mind, mind blowing stuff. Um, and, and arguably as well, I say from the economic point of view, um, like you know, take the multiplier effect, we all did that in school at some at some point or other, or whatever. But like to you know, we've no uh, like we, we've nobody to take filled jobs in a lot of Europe and certainly in Ireland. So there's plenty of work out there for people, and surely to God we should be accepting you know people into the country, allow them to become active members in the society, um, and uh, let them contribute. You know, I don't think it would. Uh, to the country, you know, whichever country they land in, all, all that much harm. And, and it is really sad. I, I know two Ukrainian ladies that uh, came and lived down my neck of the woods in, in Leitrim. And, you know, they've left their families behind them, you know, and their husbands are out on the front line. And, you know, and, and one of them is here on her own and her two kids are still with the grandparents over in Ukraine. I just, you know, I, I just... I, I couldn't cope with that stuff. Like, uh, it takes an awful lot of strength to believe it's really sad. a generational thing there. You mentioned both of you, the trauma that, you know, like in, in Fatima's case, you know, her children will not get over that. They're going to have, presumably if they have a future, their own children. That will be the legacy in the family. And there, it doesn't sound by any accounts that their situation is going to improve dramatically over the course of the next generation. So they could see, you know, her kids' kids getting on boats, knowing, and um, you know, th that the tragedy has already happened in the background of their family, that runs down through generations. So it's not just, you know, something that's affecting people today and all our societies and, for, you know, they're too grandiose a term, but humankind today, this is, this is something that is going to affect us way on into the future as well. You know, yeah. not going to go away. And even if it was, quote unquote solve somehow magically tomorrow the repercussions of what's already happened the scarring and the trauma that's already happened is still you know generations to, to work through that you know i i think it's important as well what you guys said earlier about whether people know the dangers like i think that there can be this misunderstanding that they don't know the dangers yeah. and that people you know that they need to be educated and then they wouldn't do these journeys and actually yeah you're right like the everyone that I speak to they do know the danger they're like I'm making you know I feel like I have no choice or I'm making it basically like a decision that you know I, I'd rather risk dying and hope that I have a future rather than not and Gambia again where Fatima came from I actually worked there I've been there a few times but I worked there in 2018 with like a really lovely translator a really smart guy I mean he was a student but he I think he was finished being a student and he couldn't get any job and he was he worked with me anyway for a bit and he was like very smart very capable knew all the risks like we talked about migration and everything and I heard from him like a few years later that he had also gone on a boat and ended up in the Canary Islands and I think he was 10 days at sea or something like that they got slightly lost they had, they ran out of food ran out of water you know I, I don't know if they fully ran out of fuel but when I heard from him he was like yeah I just I had to do it and that like 
you know, shocked me because I I was thinking again, it challenged my conception that it would be people who didn't understand the risk that they were taking. Yeah. yeah. And, and like you say there, I mean, you know, with that knowledge of what you're about to step into, it just goes to it, it just goes to really illustrate what their lives are like now to do that. If they're if they were unaware, if they were just you know, taking a punt for want of a better word, that's one thing, you know, thinking that, okay, well, you know, things aren't great here. So let's give this an option. But to get on those boats with the knowledge and the awareness of what's happened before to people, that that must be just blind trepidation and fear. And with your kids, like like we mentioned earlier, not just, you know, adults, like we all were doing our own economic migration, you know, but with, like with little ones in tow, is is just I think it really really drives home the point what these people are up against where they are. It's just not an option clearly for them to stay where they are. Well, or at, yeah. least, or at least it's seen as it's seen as the better option anyway. Yeah, um, in yeah, Gambia, yeah. in Gambia is there anything like what? What you know, to explain to our listeners? I suppose maybe a geographical picture of. I mean, it's not just Syria. It's not just Ukraine. There's a, a, a host of other countries. You mentioned Gambia there. You know interested to know what what is it in gambia that is forcing people to leave because it's not one you'd regularly hear about the news yeah so i mean most of my reporting generally has focused on people who flee countries where if they get to europe they would have a you know i don't want to say legitimate like they would be likely to be accepted as refugees you know they could probably claim international protection so that's people fleeing like wars like you know, Somalia or um, dictatorships like Eritrea, situations like that. But Gambia is, it has been a dictatorship, but right now it's not. Um, but the issue, yeah, it's it's generally just extreme poverty. And it tends to be that there are so few options, basically. And if you can get a family member to Europe, they can support everybody else. And I actually spent like one weekend in a Gambian village um, a very rural village and every family I think there were like 35 compounds so people live in these big compounds like with their extended family and every compound had somebody in Europe apart from I think two and you could tell which ones didn't have somebody in Europe because at night they had no lights they had no electricity um, and the ones who had people in Europe they were like even if they send back a little bit of money in Gambia that's like a huge amount of money you know and People think of money, like we think of money sometimes as like luxuries, but actually it can mean, you know, healthcare or food or, you know, it means survival, like in a very, very poor situation or a, a, a situation of poverty, money means survival. And like, yeah, in, in Gambia, it's like that. But gosh, you know, you know, talking to you, Sally, and just having this conversation with you both, you know, I'm looking out my window here in Kimmage in South Dublin and, you know, um, it just brings it home just how lucky we are, you know, like with our families here, you know, with with roof over our heads. And like you said, money, you know, you consider where you're spending money on. It's it's not just bills like, you know, OK, well, we all have to pay bills, but it's certainly not a question of survival in any way, shape or form. You know, my challenge this month would be next time we get paid well the car really should be reached or you know it, it should go in for a cert that's that's our more immediate um you know challenges that we're up against but but the way you you tell it there 
you know, a fraction of what I'd spend on getting my car service would probably keep one of those compounds, as you say, in survival um, for, for, you know, quite a considerable amount of time. It just it just brings home how lucky we are. And just by by virtue of, of the spin of the wheel where, where you're born. That's it. Yeah, because also it, I, it challenged my preconceptions a lot working on this because um, I went to Sierra Leone. I wrote one chapter there, which is West African country. They've had civil war in the past, but uh, right now it's at peace as well. And it would be another country that people wouldn't generally get, you know, recognized uh, refugee um, status. So, you know, they yeah they'd be termed i guess generally economic migrants depending on the person's exact situation but um when i went there i realized for example like the life expectancy i think is 25 or 26 years less than it is in europe um one in 20 women the un says die in childbirth of pregnant or pregnancy related complications like in their lifetime i think at the time it was like one in 10 children die before the age of five um i was there during covid and there were no ventilators like in the entire country that were working and so if you needed a ventilator you would just die and to buy oxygen you had to buy your own tanks of oxygen and i think it was like 75 dollars um i could yeah people can check on the irish times because i did a report on this for the exact amount but i think it was about 75 dollars for a canister which is like you know, I think it's like four hundred and ninety dollars. Uh, the whatever you call the uh annual income of somebody like the average one, and so, um, like if you imagine that's just people, they just can't afford to buy the oxygen that would save somebody's life, mm -hmm. and yeah, like that's it made me rethink this idea of like what is a threat to life because poverty is a threat to life, you know, and I've seen lots of people. Um, in other African countries as well who just like have no choice but to you know wait for death basically be, if they need certain types of healthcare because they can't afford it and yeah it's it's kind of like harrowing when you realize that yeah there's another mass my this bit of a pub quiz question for you um another mass migration uh, into Ireland perhaps particularly, but I know it's not, maybe a little bit more so now, but where's a legal migration, economic migration of peoples through a grandfathering, grandparenting rule, essentially, um, who qualifies for Italian passports en masse? Any ideas? Neil? No? Oh, sorry. I am, <laughs> gosh, I was just thinking about the, the Irish. You <laughs> have... On a, almost on a flippant note, we can have almost anybody playing for our national football team, right? If if uh, well, that that that's true, and and for the the rugby team, yes, you've got the kind of five year rule, and you uh, you, you can play for the Irish rugby team. Brazilians and Dublin is full of Brazilian people, mm -hmm. and, and that's off the back of the grandparenting rule, and uh, they qualify for Italian passports. So there's the other look of birth. They're they're fleeing from not extreme poverty, but from you know, a place with less prospects and uh, moving over to the EU where there are more prospects. And, you know, yeah. if if they're allowed, surely to God, you know, we can help people that are in desperate need, desperate need of our help. Shocking. Yeah. It's a sad indictment of, of European society, really. 
I would say like, yeah, I I mean, yeah, like I said, I don't really see my job as being to advocate for specific mm. policies, but it has been quite rankling to be like, I haven't spent a lot of time in Ireland the past 10 years, apart from this right. last year, I've been in and out and I've heard people like on the radio a lot talking about the lack of uh like people to work in the service industry there seems to be like a big lack of people to do certain types of jobs and like a lot of the the people that I'm in touch with who were in Libya who have now made it to Europe they're doing these types of jobs like working in restaurants working in care homes you know working with the elderly working in you know store warehouses things like that they do all these types of jobs that you know, it seems like Ireland is having a problem getting people to fill. And you do sometimes think, like, why aren't people connecting the dots here? Exactly. It can be quite frus- frustrating. And why, and why do people, like, have to go through so much trauma to be able to get these opportun- opportunities? is the wrong word, but, like, you know. Chance of, of surviving, you know. And even, even the process that we have here, you know, direct provision, you know, these, like, people just end up in this limbo land. With, with they're here but they don't have any rights to work you know they're given the stipend you know that, that you'll have some of those voices in radio oh no they're just living you know they're getting free well free welfare i think they get to like 12 correct me my figures like 12 euro a week or something you know they're just and they want it's, to work you know it's in, it's insane Neil. i worked briefly for about a year in uh, when i got out of the restaurant gig whatever 20 something years ago it's horrible the conditions like I, I used to occupy a little office space which was an elevator shaft that has been turned into an office with a little hatch and uh, when you run out of toilet paper you come down you knock on the window and I, I would have passed out you know some toilet paper I mean talk about stripping people of, of all their dignity uh, and a lot of other things then as well. And the, and, and, and the residents of this particular centre could have been there for years yeah. trying to process their refugee status. Uh, it's true. That, that I don't understand. You know, these, these are people are able and willing, you know, they've been vetted presumably or they've gone through all sorts of, you know, jumping through hoops and, and whatnot. And then you have restaurants closing in the middle of the day or bars closing in the middle of the day. Yeah. Anybody to work like Sai just said, you know, connecting the dots. It's, yeah. You, and again, you know, you don't think about it until you have these conversations then you make, just really makes you wonder, you know, like Europe, Europe is well off. You know, there should, there could, should be some, ability there to to help like these are these are people you know is it a race thing do you think so i I know you know it's it's not an advocacy thing but like is there a race racial element to all of this as well i mean certainly across africa like there's a very widespread belief that europe's migration policy is racist and that's not just to do with these like you know the crimes against humanity things like that that I'm speaking about that's also to do with general just visa applications like I have lots of friends who are like African you know musicians African artists African academics for them to get visas to come to the EU can be like so humiliating the whole process can just be so degrading and so humiliating and and still they the visas can get denied and there can you know and particularly the UK has become very difficult but like even the rest of Europe um a lot of people like now they just often just won't bother because they're like well you know even if they have an invitation to attend an event or something the whole process can just be so 
awful and for us it that can be really hard to understand because like we have such freedom of of movement with our passports whereas you know there's just like yeah there's just so many hoops that you have to jump through and the way that you can be treated even then you can still be denied the chance to board a plane or you can be questioned you know I have Ugandan musician friends who will go to the airport like four hours early because they know that they're going to be interrogated before getting on a flight to Europe and even when all their paperwork is in order they have no plan to stay there they're just going over they've been invited to festivals everything is you know just organized and they're being paid and everything and it's it's really sad to think of like the engagement that we're missing out on like the chances that we're missing out on to hear from you know all of all of these people and I don't think that a lot of Europeans are aware necessarily of that I mean I was actually doing an event um last two if maybe a month ago in Belfast and it was meant to be with Stella Nianzi who's like a very famous Ugandan poet and activist um who was actually imprisoned for uh writing poetry about the Ugandan president and his mother slightly she has this policy of radical rudeness basically that she kind of um you know writes in a rude way to get across the kind of oppression that the country is existing under and she was meant to speak at the event with me it was organized by Irish Pen um in Belfast and she was denied a visa and that was despite her being invited everything being paid for she's actually in Germany at the moment so it's the UK visa she was meant to get I think they're trying to get her to come to Dublin instead in October but like it's very yeah it's it's just kind of and it's very degrading to have to kind of try and convince people to to let you visit their country when you've been invited you know um yeah. as a bit of a lighthearted aside there sorry just when you're talking about uh, ugandan musicians kind of familiar of west african beats and all that kind of thing and um, east african what's that like are they good yeah of course yeah <laughs> music in uganda is great yeah cool they have a very good festival, uh, Nyage Nyage, if anyone ever wants to go. I've seen a few times. How do you spell that? N-Y-E-G-E, N-Y-E-G-E. Okay. Nyage Nyage. I hope I've got that right. I yeah. see Jerry getting his Nyage on yeah. over there. He <laughs> beats. Well, you know, to end on, on a light note, say, I know you, you feel sometimes that maybe your work you know, is, is you know, through, through your writing the book and, and your reportage that, you know, it is important, you know, I'm sure you kind of maybe sense that, that it is important that we have these conversations. Does it solve it? No, absolutely not. But, you know, we just need to be aware. That's that's the first step to anything, isn't it, really? You know, just to be aware that this is going on. So, yeah, for what it's worth, keep up, keep up the good work. I think we'll 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 let you go to get some sleep. Yeah. we don't want to keep yeah. up all evening. Um, you know, we we keep on putting you with questions, but that would be unfair. But thanks, thanks for joining us. I mean, especially that you've just come off another long, by the sounds of arduous trip as well. Part of me is envious that you you you're doing this this kind of what sounds like you know. Um, get to see all these really interesting places but i understand you're there for for difficult work and difficult assignments as well so yeah keep up the good work we'll certainly follow your your career as we go along won't we Derek? there's yeah yeah and then thank you sally hayden hip historians the book is my fourth time we drowned 
do go out and buy it and do keep an eye on this space and you know try to help in whatever way you can but uh thank you take care yeah thank you guys so much thank you i would like to take just a moment to thank all the hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show both myself and neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here we plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future as you can probably appreciate it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves there is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation and we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here